Revelation 14 is where we'll be today. Open your Bibles to Revelation 14. Let me pray for us briefly as we prepare to hear the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that by your spirit you're here with us today. I just pray that you stir something up by your spirit from your word in us that will push the good news of Jesus forward. It is so valuable. We cannot keep it here. It must go. And let us all be pricked. Pricked to know how we should go or we should send or we should give or we should pray. Let this be a community project in the advancement of the kingdom of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw him, and I saw the headlights of the oncoming train, and I knew that I had time to act. Those are the words of John O'Connor. John O'Connor is a city transit worker in the city of Oakland. And on November 3rd of this year, on a Sunday, just after the Oakland Raiders had beat the Detroit Lions, the subway station was crowded with people outside the stadium. And there's a video that catches all of this. And what you see is a crowded terminal there. And then you see what's called the trackway. That's the pit that the trains actually run in. And you see in the distance an oncoming train. And then horrifyingly, all of a sudden, you see a man break away from the crowd and begin to stumble towards the trackway. Workers begin to yell, don't cross the yellow line. And apparently he's intoxicated because he's walking wobbly and he's got his phone in his hand and he gets right to the edge. And then dramatically, he falls into the trackway. Now, instantly sobered, the guy wakes up, realizes he's in the path of an oncoming train and he jumps up trying to scramble out of the trackway and he gets about 75% out and here comes the train. And as you know, 75% out of the way of a 55-ton fast-moving train is 100% in trouble. And so as you're watching this video and all of a sudden a guy springs forward out of the crowd, it's John O'Connor. And at that moment, he said he was thinking, I saw the man, I saw the lights of the train, and I knew I had time. And he extends his body out in front of the path of the train. And at the last minute, in the closest train save video I've ever seen, he yanks him out. Both guys are saved, and the train goes whoosh, rushing by. Very dramatic scene that happened on November 3rd. And I tell you this story because I want you to consider what spurred one man to go forward and act while everybody else was apparently frozen in the drama of the moment or frozen in fear. In his own words, John said, I saw him, I saw the headlights, and I knew I could make it. If any of these three realities weren't in place, I dare say John would not have saved this man. He would have tragically died. As we've said, today is Mission Sunday at TCC, and what I would love is for this same type of intentional, effective, risky action 
to grip this church when it comes to the idea and the practice of global missions. And so today we're going to look in the book of Revelation. One thing that is usually overlooked in the book, as you see a series of visions given by God to John, is the visions are for the church. And the visions are for the church now. And John's day and for us. It's not just something that's going to happen in the future. It's for us today. Today as we're considering how can we get the gospel out? How can the gospel go to where it is currently not? We have help from the book of Revelation. In our text today, in Revelation 14, we'll see angels descending. And they're going to reveal three truths. All right? They're going to announce boldly a call to action that says, this is the way things are. And we'll see three realities that can spur us forward in global missions today. So let's take a look at them together here. Beginning in Revelation 14, verse 6. So remember the scene. John has been zapped into a realm of visions where he's seeing all kinds of things. They may sound crazy to us, but to John, they're very meaningful. And if we read them correctly, they can change who we are. So verse 6 has this. Let's read it. John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. He's given a vision. And with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, verse 7. And he said, that's the angel, with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So the flying angel has with him the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The very same story that we all have with us even today. And I want you to note four things about the gospel. Because the first reality is the nature of the gospel that can spur us on in missions at TCC. So one thing you note here about the gospel here is it is described as eternal. All right, the famous pastor Charles Spurgeon was often dependent on commentator Matthew Henry, who lived in the 1600s. About this verse, Matthew Henry said this Observe, the gospel is an everlasting gospel. It is so in its nature, and it will be so in its consequences. Though all flesh be grass, the word of the Lord endureth forever. Missions holds eternal realities. Because the gospel holds eternal consequences. The gospel is eternal. Secondly, we see in this verse that like the angel itself, the gospel is meant to fly. The gospel is meant to fly. The angel, as he swoops down, he doesn't sit on the gospel. He doesn't bottle it. He doesn't merely ponder it. In verse 6, it reads, the angel comes to proclaim the gospel. He declares it. He spreads it. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he goes to talk about the gospel, he talks about it in a very dynamic way. It's as if the gospel story itself is alive. Listen to this. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, 
1.5. Listen to how he describes this story. He said, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Doesn't sound like a normal story, right? The gospel itself is alive. Colossians 1.6, Paul describes the gospel and he said, the gospel is bearing fruit and the gospel is increasing. You're meant to see it as dynamic because it is meant to fly. It's meant to run forth. In my community group, one of the things I love about having people together in the church in a small group is I get to interact with a lot of kids. And over the years, we've had a lot of babies that I get to hold. Not just mine, but everybody in our group. And I love it. And what inevitably happens, I'm thinking of one particularly really cute, chubby-faced little girl that I held when she was a baby at my house. As she grew up into the toddler stage, I noticed something. When she would come in and I would pick her up, she would immediately do this, right? And slide on, and then she would toddle away and fall, and toddle away and fall. And it was clear. She's now made to run. She's going to go. That's her nature of a toddler. And the same is true of the gospel. It's made to go out from us. Third truth about the gospel here, its destination is all. Its destination is all. Though oftentimes when you read Revelation, it can be misty and cloudy and hard to drive through Revelation, but at this point, it's pretty clear. In verse 6, the destination of the gospel is those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language, and people. This is everyone, especially for John, all the Gentiles. As one author said, all the non-Jewish peoples of the world who are separated from God and strangers to his promise. That means those in the Himalayas that David Platt writes about, those in Asia that David Coker translates for, All the peoples in between. That's the destination of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ by nature is for everybody. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. That's the destination of the gospel. And fourth, about the nature of the gospel. Notice in the text, the content of the gospel is the glory of God. The content of the gospel is the shining, magnificent glory of God. You can see it in verse 7, and it's massively important for world missions. Verse 7, let's read it again. Angel says with a loud voice, here's this content. It's elaborating on what the gospel is. He says, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and the worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea of the springs of water. Now notice, there's some directives here in the text. First, fear God and give Him glory. Do you see that there in the Bible? It's the first set of directives. Fear God, give Him glory. Later, he says, worship Him. All right? All three of these directives are different ways of saying that God is worthy of to be praised. Fear him, be in awe of him, praise him, worship him. It all means the same thing. Celebrate God. Make much 
of God. Why should we do this? According to the text, there's a couple of reasons. There's a lot of reasons in the entire scripture why God should be worshipped by everyone. But here we're giving a couple of reasons. They might surprise you. Look at the first one in verse 7. The angel says, fear God and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. That sounds a little scary, right? Now remember, the rest of the book of Revelation tells the story of God's judgment. In the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus is presented as the Lamb of God. He was slain for the sake of his people. We deserved eternal death for our sin, but the Lamb of God actually took destruction upon himself so that we could live. But in Revelation, this slain Lamb of God is actually standing because he's triumphant, because he's won, because he's victorious. But there are people in Revelation that are seen as rejecting the Lamb. Some are disciples and follow the Lamb, but many, many see the Lamb and turn against Him and away from Him. The fact that God is just and true in Jesus means nothing to these people who turn away. And in order for God to maintain His holiness, He will judge those who turn away. God doesn't let sin and evil and treachery go unpunished. So a part of the gospel and the glory of God is the fact that he will judge what is evil. He will judge those who are sinful. And another reason here why God is worthy of worship, the second reason given in the text, is what I call his creative magnificence. Look in verse 7 again. The angel says, worship him who made what? Who made, that's creative magnificence. He made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Only one can take credit for speaking into existence all creation. And that is God himself. Every raindrop and waterfall and tiger and tawny owl, every vast ocean, every vocal cord was spoken to existence by God in Jesus Christ. It's evident as you see creation, only some deny it. Those people need the gospel. But some see it in and through the gospel. The point of this text is only one person should get credit. I don't know if you guys travel for the holidays, but we traveled on Thanksgiving. Married a girl from Florida, so that means I get to go to the beach on Thanksgiving, right? We were there. We were on a fishing trip at the coast, but there was also a beach, and there was sand, and so we made some sand castles. I don't know if I can find a picture there. There you go. I don't know if you can see it, but that's my crew, some of them anyway, great fishermen that they are. We were making sand castles, and I like sand castles, and I recently saw of a sandcastle celebration in Texas. They call it Sandfest in Texas. And I want to show you some pictures from it. Here's one. Uh, here's the castle, and here's the people who made it, right? Just with the competition where they got sculptors from all over the planet. And they came, and they built the best 
sand structures ever, and they had an award. These guys won, uh, Laura, and this guy, this girl won uh, third place uh, in a Sophia statue from Remy is her name. Pretty cool. There's another one here. Uh, keep it together. There's Joris. He apparently did that one. That's pretty neat. There's another one. Uh, this was my favorite because it's a dad joke, if you get it. Continental drip. Ah, uh, That's from Jeff Strong. And the winner is a guy named Damon Langlois, and he had Liberty Crumbling. A sad, isn't that cool? That's Sandcastle. Now, what if, what if someone else wanted to get in that picture who didn't make it? Pastor Hunter's from Texas, right? <laughs> what if Pastor Hunter stood? You would think it was hilariously funny, not just his picture, but you'd think it was funny. Even though you're from Texas, you shouldn't take credit for that. Why? Only one person gets the glory when it comes to taking credit, creative credit. If you didn't make it, you don't take it. That's the way it is with God in the gospel. Only he created. The gospel tells us that God created a good world and he's worthy to be worshipped just for that. The world was broken, however, when man turned away from God, but Christ came to mend all of this brokenness. Where it was cracked, he fills it up. He is to renew, to create, and to recreate. And this all begins in Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. We see a new type of creation, a recreation of all things that will finally be finished when Christ comes again. And only he is worthy to be worshipped for this. I want to sum up what we've seen in the text so far, all right? We've seen the gospel is eternal. It's dynamic, it's not to be harnessed. Three, it's destined to go to every nation. And four, it's packed full of God's glory in Christ. Now here's the question. If all this is true about the gospel, why would we not want to be a part of sending people from this church to places where the gospel is not? Why would we not want to support work among villages who have no clue who God is, especially in Jesus? Why would we not ourselves consider going to be a part of God's plan for gospel spreading? Here's the kicker. Once you understand the nature of the gospel that you claim to love, you start to run out of excuses are not participating in the global spread of the gospel. Believing certain things about God and the gospel will propel global mission. So that's the first reality that spurs us on in a world where missions needs to grow. First reality is the nature of the gospel. Here's the second one we see in the text. You find it in verse 8. This world's charms are going to fail. The charms of this world will fail. And that should push us forward in global missions. Look at verse 8. Here comes another angel, right? John has seen a vision of one angel. And here comes another one, a second one. He's following the first one. This is what he says. 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So now in John's vision, he sees a second angel swooping down. This one has a different proclamation. But he's still declaring, this is how it is. This is what's real. And here's the message. Put simply, Babylon is doomed. Alright, so let's back up. If the message is Babylon is doomed, let's make sure we know what the angel means by the word Babylon. The empire of Babylon was an ancient empire. You see it come to the forefront here in the Old Testament book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar is leading this vast empire and it conquers God's people. Does atrocious things to them, takes God's people from their homeland displays false gods everywhere, dominates God's chosen sons. Now, that was back in the days of Daniel. John is way after Daniel. He's seeing these visions, but he's also looking around, and he notices another empire, the Roman Empire. They're also displaying false gods everywhere. They're also mistreating God's people. And so John sees a pattern. And he begins to call Rome, Babylon, but not just Rome. Every evil system throughout history that oppresses God's people, he can say, oh, that's Babylon, right? Babylon has certain patterns. Even in the early church, they would throw Christians to lions. It might trigger a thought of Daniel being thrown to the lions. There are patterns of governments oppressing God's people. All ungodly social and economic injustices and religious heresies, politically corrupt way of life. That's what John means here by Babylon. Now, stay with me. There's a reason Babylon is mentioned in this text directly after the message about the eternal gospel, okay? Even though the good news is all for all nations and peoples, Babylon is working against it, all right? The systems of the world are working against the Gospels. Babylon has tricked many into being satisfied with far less than the glory of God. According to verse 8, she gets unbelief in nations drunk with the wine of immorality and idolatry. Later on in chapter 17 of Revelation, we hear a very similar theme as Revelation tends to uh, pull back on itself often. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 17, we read, talking about the same Babylon, the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. In the Old Testament, waters represented ungodly Gentiles. So here, the announcement is the great prostitute, the figure of speech for Babylon, which is a figure of speech for the world governments that hate Christians. They're seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality of the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Here's a summary. Throughout the book, and in these texts, God sees an evil world system engineered by Satan himself that opposes the gospel. Babylon does so through sexual immorality and idolatry. As I read this text, I thought back, to a trip I went on overseas, a mission trip, short term. And the missionary took me into a village and the gospel was spreading there. 
And he began to tell me a sad story about a village not too far away in which there was a man who had lived for 30 years faithful to his wife. And one day, someone outside the village brought in technology that they'd never seen, phone, laptop. And on the phone and laptop, he showed this man pornographic videos. Here was a man who lived with his wife faithfully for years. He became addicted to the sexual immorality scenes, and he left his wife, became an addict, farther and farther away from God. It's a global phenomenon that sexual immorality pulls people away from Jesus Christ and the gospel. They cannot see the glory of God with this type of idolatry. But hear me, the angel's announcement here is good news. Because he says Babylon, the harlot, is fallen. Read it again. He declares this reality. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In short, all of her charms will fail. They are not eternal like the gospel. The image of Babylon in our text is based in part on the Old Testament figure of Jezebel. You might remember Jezebel. She's in the book of Kings. She is the wicked wife of King Ahab. And she's got it out against God's people and God's prophets. And she stands against them. But she one day meets her fate. If you remember how it's very graphic. She's pushed out the window. She splats on the ground. And later the dogs come and devour her. I bring that up because here in Revelation 17, we are told that the world systems will have the same fate. In verse 16 of Revelation 17, we are told there will be a civil war of sorts among Satan and the very systems he has created. And they will make Babylon desolate and naked, and here's the tie-in to Jezebel, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. What does this mean? I know Revelation uses crazy language. Here's what it means. All the social and religious upheaval and injustice and oppression will ultimately collapse upon itself in the face of Jesus Christ. One day, North Korean detention centers will not be full of women being tortured and raped. And that means the corruption that causes 1,600 teens and children in Moldova a week to be trafficked will cease. And that means one day in Istanbul and Penang, you can go to sleep without hearing a call to prayer to a false god. Why? Because Jesus is the victor. Now, Why is John bringing this up at this point in Revelation? And why are we talking about this on a mission Sunday? Simply, it's easier to motivate the troops if you know the battle is already won. Each March, about 10 million people will tune in to what we call March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament. And I was reminded recently of a scene they show almost at every tournament. If you ever watch a tournament, you've seen it. It's called the shot from a game in 1992 that I happened to watch between Duke and Kentucky. The story of that game is it's a really tight game in the tournament. 
They were in overtime. It was 102 to 103. Kentucky's winning. There's only two seconds left. Duke called a timeout. The coach grabs everybody in this huddle, looks them all in the eye, and says, even though there's only two seconds left and we're down by one to a really good team, we're going to win this game. The players are stunned. A lot of confidence. They go back out. Grant Hill throws a perfect pass. Christian Leitner hits the shot with only two seconds left and what's called the miracle shot, and they win the game. And after the game, all the players say, I was motivated by the coach's confidence. Churches are motivated forward in the gospel by the confidence that the world's evil systems will fail. Babylon's charms will fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And that can spur us on to world missions. So the first reality from this text that can spur you forward in mission is the nature of the gospel. The second reality that spurs us forward is the fact that the world's charms will fail. Finally, starting in verse 9, we see a third reality, and it's this. It is the reality of hell. The reality of hell that should spur us forward in global missions. Let's see. Read a couple verses here, beginning in verse 9, back in chapter 14. Here's a third angel. Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever received the mark of his name. Now let's sort this out. You may not read Revelation every day, and it's confusing with these images. The first thing this angel proclaims is that some will worship the beast and his mark with a sign on the forehead. Well, what's the beast and what is this crazy sign? There's a lot of theories about who the beast is. Not going to discuss them all, but I think it is best to understand the beast as evil kingdoms who persecute God's people. The beast is closely associated with what Revelation calls the red dragon. That's an image of Satan earlier in the book. Get the picture. Satan is working with kingdoms to oppress followers of Christ, and hopefully he wants to defeat Christ. Think of the beast as a metaphor for evil governments doing the bidding of Satan against God's people. Its allure is one of power. Now, the mark of the beast also has a storied history of interpretation. But here's what you need to know. In the Old Testament, the mark on the forehead is a way of showing allegiance. Okay? Now, the mark mentioned here is probably a symbolic way of saying that many will choose loyalty for evil and against Jesus Christ and his people. Loyalty to evil governments against loyalty to God. In short... The people mentioned in this text are the ones who do not follow Jesus Christ. And check out their future. Again, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured in full strength into the cup of his anger, 
and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of Christ and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. This is what we call hell. Now notice a few things about it here. First, hell is God's furious, active, intentional justice. Hell is called God's wrath that he pours out. See that action there? He's pouring it out in full measure, tragically, against all who do not believe. Notice the word play. Earlier we saw Babylon intoxicating people with immorality. And that intoxicating wine seems powerful, but it pales in comparison to the wine of God's wrath that is being poured out. It's furious, active, intentional justice. Secondly, the fire and sulfur of hell are put in this text purposefully. They're supposed to trigger something in you. Elsewhere in the book, fire is used as a figure of speech for God's judgment. All right? Now, sulfur, or in your translation, maybe brimstone, are added to the picture to intensify this image of the wrath of God in this book that hopefully you'll take and read this holiday season. David Platt tells a story of hiking to a remote village in the Himalayan. And he comes across a scene that breaks his heart. There's a, a scene where someone has died in the village and they've rushed the body out and they put it on a funeral pyre for a public burning. They put some fuel on and they light the guy's dead body on fire. And some people are asking questions because they've never seen this before. But David Platt is just broken because he feels like he's seen a picture, a glimpse of what hell will be like. And he wrestles and he says, if the fires of hell are real and literal, this is awful. And it will not stop. And then he has the thought, if this fire of hell language is figurative, it stands for something even worse. Some combo of spiritual and psychological and physical horror show. We're meant to be scared into action with this picture of hell. Third thing about hell may surprise you. The torment of those who reject God is in the presence of the Lamb. Somehow, some way, this text says the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb are there during the turmoil. People wrestle. Here's how you might can make sense of this. Though Christ's nature, his goodness, his power, and his love won't be enjoyed in hell, his presence in some sense will be felt. One author puts it this way. It is still in hell that no one can hide from the Lord or escape the terrible countenance of his anger. So God's power is present in hell as the one who sustains our being and the one who enforces justice and the one who maintains eternal suffering. He is present in all the ways men do not want him to be present. 
and none of the ways that believers enjoy his presence. Finally, one other thing about hell. According to this text, there's no turning back. Throughout the story of the Old Testament, God deals with his people very graciously. Time and time again, think about David, think about Moses, think about Abraham. Our God is a God of second chances, but according to this text, his mercy for those who reject him will end. In my own story, God has not given me second chances. He's given me 10,000 chances. Over and over again, he has relented his punishment. But in hell, there is no turning back. Buddhist friends will have an awful day of reckoning. Hindus will finally face the one true God. And the 2 billion people that make up 25% of the world's population claiming they are Muslims will die forever, over and over and over again because they have rejected their maker in Jesus Christ. Dear church family, this text is for us. The word of God is pleading for us to wrestle with hell and the reality of it. And then to send people. And then to go and then to pray and then to give. These three realities that are in this text are meant to spur us forward in global mission. You can tell that by the way he wraps it up in chapter 14. Look at verse 12. Clearly John understands why he's been given these three visions. He writes this. He sees the visions and he said, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's you. Why is this a call to endurance? It's not just that the Christian life is hard. It is. Christian life on mission is incredibly hard. If you're going to give, that means you don't get something. All right? That's the way giving works. You lose something, you give it up. If you're going to go somewhere, that means you don't stay somewhere. We need endurance for that. If you're going to pray, that means you're not going to watch TV. All right? It means you're going to pray. We need endurance, and these three visions are given to us so that we would endure in world missions, taking the gospel to every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. For this mission, we must pray. So let's pray together. Oh, God, we've heard from your word, Father. We do not stand here ignorant now because you've revealed it to us. You've revealed to us the nature of the gospel. You've shown us how the charms of this world will fail 
And we know the reality of hell. And I pray these biblical themes will push this church forward, igniting us something new. As David Platt says, something has to change. I don't know what it is. God, this is not a pressure sermon. This is a biblical sermon. And I pray that you let it be a call to all of us to go, to send, to pray, and to give. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.